Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. When it comes to all things children, Dr. Stephen Cowan is the best. <laughs> he is a board-certified pediatrician with 30 years of clinical experience working with children. He has a subspecialty in developmental pediatrics and is New York State certified in medical acupuncture. He's a fellow in the American Academy of Pediatrics, a member of the AAP Committee on Children with Disabilities, and a member of the American Academy of Medical Acupuncture. He's the founder of the Westchester Center for Holistic Families, and he also sees patients at Turnisall Wellness in New York City, and he's director of health and education for the nonprofit Turnisall Kids. He lectures internationally and is the author of Fire Child, Water Child, and has contributed numerous chapters to several books about holistic approaches to childhood conditions. He specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric problems such as ADD, autistic spectrum disorders, migraines, Tourette's, asthma, and allergies. And his post on Mind Buddy Green from a few years back titled 11 Things I Wish Every Parent Knew has been read by millions, that's right, millions of people around the world and is one of our all-time favorites here. Now, whether you're a parent, an uncle, an aunt, or if you just interact with children at all, you're going to want to listen to what Dr. Cowan has to say. Dr. Cowan, welcome. It's great to be here, Chase. It is so great to have you here. As Colleen and I mentioned to you before the podcast, this is like the perfect time to have you here for <laughs> us personally, since our oldest, Ellie, is three years old and our youngest, Grace, is seven months. So, Wow. Critical age. <laughs> that is like, you know, sort of opportunity maximized to <laughs> development. So what, what, let's kind of mass. monopolize your time. Um so let's start. How would you describe your practice? Well, my my practice has evolved over the years. You know, I started out as a child development specialist, and I got increasingly more holistic, you know, in my interests by the nature of child development. And then I ran a busy pediatric practice, started it from scratch, and it exploded with a colleague of mine. And it became kind of a monster, you know, where I wasn't spending as much time as I wanted with every patient. And so, you know, about 10 years ago, I jumped ship from that to just do my consultation practice now. And we, we have a mutual friend, Frank Lippman. We who, love you, Frank. Are you listening? We love you, Frank. And, you know, he really encouraged me in, in that dive out into the world of just doing what I love which is talking to parents and playing with kids and consulting on chronic illness that nobody knows what to do with, complex problems, um, you know, just general uh, sort of optimizing health consults, which is a big deal now. And I love that. I get parents like you coming in who say, there's nothing wrong. We just want to optimize, right? which is the whole mind-body-green premise anyway. And so we're kind of, we have a kinship there, and a big part of my practice now has become that, so I love it. So how would you describe your philosophy? In a nutshell, it's about empowering, you know, empowering kids, the dignity of kids to find their way, as opposed to indulging them, which makes them victims, and empowering parents 
to feel like they're in charge. They're not giving that power to the doctor or to the therapist or whoever. It's this quality of community that you're building that's an empowered community to make decisions yourself, to handle stress. Stress isn't going away. (laughs) But how well can you handle it, right? And there are secrets to that. What I've done lately which is really fun, and maybe we'll do one of these. I've gamified the whole thing <laughs> because kids love games. So I came up with, you know, I started this nonprofit, um, you know, Turn Us All Kids, to try to bring this kind of philosophy of empowerment uh, for each kid into schools. And as part of that, I created these list of 52 games, game cards. And they're all fun games, five-minute games you can play to build these powers, cognitive powers, physical powers, emotional powers, spiritual powers, right? These different levels, all gamified. So the parents can do it with their kids around the dinner table, when they go for a walk. To me, that's like so much fun for me. We're going to do that. Colleen and I are going to do what? We're, we're going to take, we're, we're, we're sign us up. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about your practice too is traditional chi- Chinese medicine, TCM, plays a role, which you don't hear a lot yeah. in pediatrics. Yeah, so I teach it that. all around the world now because there are so few you know, pediatricians who have opened the door to that. In fact, my book is a bigger seller in China, my fire child, water child in China now, than here. Wow. And that's a lot of people. Yes. Because it's, you know, this is ancient wisdom. You know, I'll tell you a story of how I got into Chinese medicine. Because Frank and I have a parallel path. We both got into it at exactly the same time. And I'm, we've talked about it, and I, I really think it was a need in us, right, that was missing from our Western medicine training. For me, I was a medical director of a rehab hospital for kids, really, really, really sick kids. And I had been doing meditation myself and martial arts and things like that, but I never walked over that boundary and said I could try, you know, do this with my patients. But I brought, what we were doing was part of St. Mary's uh, Rehab Hospital, and I had all these kids up in Westchester at this beautiful facility, and I could design the, the program really, really sick, asthmatics and ex-premies and all these problems. And so in the mornings, I started doing breathing exercises with them based on Chinese medicine. But I didn't really know Chinese medicine. I knew some Qigong. And they got off all their meds. These are kids who were chronically steroid-dependent for years. And it was such a mind-blower to me. I went running back to Columbia to the pulmonology department and said, you're not going to believe this. And they didn't, of course. <laughs> and that opened my door. I said, i got to study more of this. That's when I met Ephraim Korngold. Sure. And he became one of my teachers, and, and Frank's too. And, and it opened a whole world of what is truly system-based medicine as opposed to fix-it medicine, you know, mechanic medicine, assembly line medicine. This is a much more embodied experience of living in a way that allows you to think about the space between us. Right now, right. there's something happening between us, right? And you can work there. That's a family dynamic. That's a classroom dynamic. That's a workspace dynamic that needs healing sometimes. It's not about just one person's problem right. or another's. 
So you mentioned the space between, and I, I use that phrase a lot, but in talking actually about technology and how yeah. in, in, in the context of you know, going out to dinner, used to just, you know, if you went solo, you sat at the bar, you talked to people, you went with a group, you right. all talked, and now what I call is like the space in between, you know, sitting and arriving and menu and ordering now. the dead space. And now it's, it's, it's monopolized by phone and technology right. and social media. Like the space in between, space between is lost. You're using a different con. Let's talk about the space between and so, kids and technology. Yeah. So the space between is for me, uh, what grows a potential to hold more information that allows you to cope more effectively with stress when you recognize that the space between is shared and it's complex and it's diverse and it's always changing and when you're okay with that you can roll with anything but when you shut it down so that everybody's locked into their own personal space and you're sort of territorial Instead, and there's no sharing of space anymore, no conversation, nothing like that, you actually create, you set yourself up to be unable to handle the stuff that's going on outside of you. Yeah. And we see this sometimes where, let's say, here's an example, common you know, example, kid's on his phone. And you're saying, come on, it's dinner time. Not now. Wait, leave me alone. One more minute. You know, and yep. they can't pull themselves out of that space because they are not actually honoring the space between. They've walled it off. Often they can't even hear you. Right? So there's no connection. One of the greatest human developments that we have is conversation, storytelling, sharing the space between this ability and and cognitively this is right brain material right right brain holds way more information do you know what a memory palace is have you ever heard this expression so memory palaces are here i'll do it with you right now close your eyes and picture your bedroom can you see it okay look around tell me what you see just act what you're not what you know what you're seeing in your mind so I see our bed with our with our sheets and our and our brick and our laundry. <laughs> Good. So as you're looking around, you're engulfing that space between visually in your right cortex. You're actually you don't need to necessarily label I could pin numbers on all of those things. And you'd never forget those numbers. Right. Or I could give you data to put in on your bed and on the dirty laundry and on the carpet. And, you know, and that's how you can hold a lot of information. One of the most frightening trends I'm seeing in kids right now, they can't do this. They can't visualize anymore because it's all done for them. It's become almost withered vestigial organ, the ability to, you know, here's the test I do with all little kids. Close your eyes and see a tree. And, you know, okay, I got it. Okay, now how many limbs do you see? Four. Kids can't do it. They close their eyes and say, I just see black. What do you mean? And then they want to open their eyes because they don't feel safe there because they can't visualize. This sets up 
what I'm seeing now is the biggest epidemic of our time, which is, we'll call it alienation, as the biggest epidemic of our time. Anxiety, allergy, autism, ADD, they're all parts of this alienation from the space between. So, so when you, so if they, I have to work with them to be able to visualize, because it's like gone. So when, so with regards to, to technology, is it, a, is it gray? Is there a fine line with what's too much? So for, so for example, so we have YouTube on our, on our big screen TV and you know, Ellie will watch uh, Coco Melon, a little Sesame Street. She loves the Wiggles. And I'm blown away by what she learns. We don't have it on all day, but like she, she watches it. Um, like the Wiggles, she's, you know, doing ballet and, and like dancing Beautiful. to it. Beautiful. And with Coco Melon, like she's learned something. I'm just like amazed. Like on one hand, right. I'm just amazed of what you can watch and learn. And on the other hand, you know, when is this too much? Well, when too, do we? And, and I think a lot of parents like it's, it's a struggle of like, okay, technology plays a role, whether it's YouTube on the big screen or the the iPhone or the iPad when you go to dinner or you travel. Like, what what what's the? How do you manage it? Well, first, let me ask you this: It's a great question, and I get asked it every day. But let me ask: At what cost? What is lost? It's so convenient. Plugged in, she's turned on. Yeah. She loves it. It's feeding her. It's great. I ask you first this question. Sure. At what cost? Sure. So what's lost? Well, I don't know. Her use isn't, it's a couple hours. I don't know if it's a couple hours. That's not what I'm asking. In that couple of hours, because before we start saying... Because it's always gray. You said, yeah. is it gray or is yeah. it black well, and white? I, I don't know what's lost. Well, but think about it for a sec. What is lost? Here, I, years ago with one of my daughters, I said, you know, I predict, 20 years ago, that in 30 years, 40 years, there'll be no teachers. There'll be iPads. And you can do your work at your own pace and mm-hmm. hand it in. You won't lose your homework. It'll all be right there. You just do, it'll be fun for kids. They'll love it. But at what cost? What's lost? Well, you're, you're losing the connection. If, if truly in that, in that situation where there is no teacher, there is no classroom, there is no connection with other people, the human connection is, is lost. And that's a, that's a big deal. That is, and so when we talk... To an extreme, ab- yeah. So you just answered it. So human connection is not just a big deal. It is the big deal and so the entertainment i'm not a i'm not anti-entertainment sure. i love it i love you know i grew up with tv the trick is how do you incorporate human connection into that experience because me sitting across from you now is a different experience than me talking on the phone to you sure right or different from facetime even because i can feel your energy sitting here I can feel the space between us growing as we're starting to get into this conversation. There's an awareness of something beyond data download. And so here's the gray 
Because I don't want to say never sure. use screens, although the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends under two. They sure. used to be under three. No screen time except FaceTime with grandparents. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. amazing That's cool. beautiful. Yeah. But what I want to sensitize you to and everybody out there in Mind Body Greenland is the shared human experience is all I really care about. So you can sit and watch with her and giggle with her, and you've done your job. Yep. But plugging her in alone it, in her room yep. is very different experience for her. It becomes narcissistic. Yep. It's just me, 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 me. When we share, she gets to watch what you think is funny and what I think is funny. So totally different if you just plop them down and say go watch versus and leave and leave. You want to have like dinner. You're, you're sitting on the sofa together. You're dancing together to the Wiggles. It's, it's interactive. Just, yeah, it's it's no different than if a dancer came into your room and did it. Yeah, but your shared experience is the space between, between. and that builds into social intelligence, emotional intelligence cognitive executive function intelligence, physical body intelligence, because you become aware of body language that's outside of this flat screen. There's energy, right? Right, Real energy that's happening in the room. It's, it's sort of, what, what, what I'm trying to do is take analog experience and fuse it with digital experience. So it's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. So I love, music and the first time when i got my first cds you know of you know that were all digital recordings that they had remastered of coltrane and they were horrible do you know why why you couldn't hear the air of his <laughs> in the room they had digitalized it out there was no space between the notes it was just note dead Note dead, note dead, and it was like, that's not alive. So getting the analog experience of daddy laughing at Wiggles with, you know, your daughter, it blows it into a whole new experience. Yeah. It's a much more enlivened experience, enriched experience. We talk about enrichment a lot in what I do, right? Enriching your, your experience of food. Here's a great example, great segue into food, right? Why do we eat? For survival. For so that's one. Yep. Give me four more reasons. Um, uh, for hunger, for joy, Good. for connection. Exactly. For I'm like then we got for boredom. For well, that's <laughs> sort of like yeah, entertainment, yeah. right? So we have these reasons, and there's also a sacred gratitude experience spiritual, of yeah. it, spiritual. So these are what is the space between experience. Yes, we could have fast food every single day, and we know that's not good for you, right? That's what's wrong with screens when it's just the digital experience of one. I love that. As opposed to the experience of shared. The digital and the analog. So you're mentioning, mentioning data and information and... This leads me to my next question, and it's a very, it's a big topic. It's a complicated topic. Autism. It's a big part of my practice. I know. You know, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing, as a developmental pediatrician, as a holistic pediatrician, as someone interested in chronic illness, 
particularly inflammation, which we're now understanding subpart of autism. When I first started out, it was one in 3,000 kids. When I give big lectures now, when I'm teaching, and I ask everybody in the audience how many people know somebody who's autistic, everyone raises their hand. That freaks me out. Sure. And I've watched it go from one in 3,000, one in 2,500, one in 1,000, one in 500. Now it's one in 49 kids, right? And if you just say boys, it's even lower. That's crazy. And it's not because we're better at diagnosing. That's a fallacy. If that were true, then we would be pulling them from other diagnoses, and those numbers would be going down. But that's not true at all. The numbers of developmental disabilities of all kinds, not just autism, is going up like that. And what I've come to understand, the way, there is no autism. There is no one autism. There are many autisms. It's kind of a, like an end symptom mm -hmm. of many different problems. One subgroup is inflammation of the brain. Right? One is PTSD. In fact, there are some resemblance in the brain. You know, the hippocampus shrinks down into a very little nut in PTSD. Same thing happens in some subgroup of autism. But we have to stop generalizing it as a thing and realize there are all these subgroups of people with a shared manifestation. Now, if you take into the core diagnosis, it's the same thing we were talking about before. Communication breakdown, alienation, autoism. So we take that screen and you've plugged that kid in. I'm not saying it causes it, but it certainly exacerbates the experience of being alone in the world. So you're going to, you're, you're, your immune system is going to fire up because that's not natural. We're tribal beings. Your cognitive system is going to blow up in inflammation since half of the brain is an immune system. The glial cells are immune cells, derivatives. So you're going to get inflamed there and your gut is going to get inflamed because that's a processing center. In fact, the best way to think about it, when I teach uh, parents to understand something like autism, is the holy triad of the neurogastroimmune system. One system, not three systems. The neurogastroimmune, it's one system. There is no immune system. That's a myth. You know why we think of them as separate systems? Why? Because in our training as doctors, we took different rotations in each of them. <laughs> That's the only reason. And now we have specialists, right? So when you, what happens in one is happening in the others, right? What's happening, so you can say allergies or mast cell activation or GI processing. They're all about processing information about the world around you. And to do that, think of the microbiome, right? as part of this mediator of the neurogastroimmune system. The microbiome is the space between. It's actually the go-between. That's actually taking information in, breaking it down, processing, say, yeah, you, you can come in. No, you, you're weird. You're not, you know, I don't even know if you're food. You're out of here, right? If you wipe that away, which we're doing 
We're talking about it on many different levels here, you and I, Jason. One, one, it's you know plugging your kid in and breaking down the space between. The other is in the gut, in the immune system. So I guess I have two. A, what do you think's driving it? And then two, what do you think we've just been getting so wrong there? On the wrong piece, I had Dr. Mahmoud Ganum mm. on, and he's studying it. And he said, well, for one, the way we've been studying it, it's a spectrum. There's mild. And then they're severe, and we've lumped everyone into one bucket. That's and so true. That's one problem. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "I'm excited to start studying that." But like, what, what's your opinion on one? What do you think is driving it? And then two, what are we? What are we just missing? Well, we're missing a lot. They're, of they're related. <laughs> they are related. So the spectrum is the degree yes. of severity, but there's another aspect to that spectrum, and that is what we're missing, in my opinion, after 35 years of pediatrics, we're missing the subtlety of who, the nature of each child, the temperament of each child. If you treat them all as if, if all children are the same, you're going to make mistakes. Nature favors diversity, right? It, you have two kids now, and you're recognizing already, when the second one comes in, how different their personalities mm-hmm. already are starting to manifest. Yep. When I was in training, when I, when I started my peds practice, and then I had my two kids, it kind of blew my mind that my second one was a completely different personality. As a developmental pediatrician, I said, that must mean something. <laughs> and so I went to all the experts around the country asking them about this. this what does this mean? And everybody was like, eh, it's just they're different. I said, but they're coming from the same genetic mix. They're eating the same food. They're living in the same environment. They're even borrowing the same clothes. We play with the same toys. I'm the same. What's the variable there? And it opened up a world for me that would end up being what I wrote about in my book, Fire Child, Water Child, that different temperaments matter. Right? And if so, if you treat them all, here's your ear infection, they all get treated the same. Right. Here's your asthma, you all get treated the same. Birthing, all the same. It doesn't matter who you are in the equation. You're going, it's, nature will rebound against you. It will show itself. I see autism and ADD as canaries in the coal mine of what we're doing to ourselves. Autism is sort of like the, the pinnacle of what I'm calling the epidemic of alienation, being feeling cut off. And what are they cut off from? The ability to visualize, like I said before, to hold the picture in your mind, and the ability to do what we're doing right now, which is go back and forth and converse. Right? I say something, it's triggering something in your mind right now. In fact, you may be seeing something as I'm saying it. And it's going to help you say something that I'll be interested in. When I work with an autistic kid, it's more driven, almost like a dictator. They can, if they learn language, they just download it. Right. It's not the playful game of catch that we're doing. Where, where I'm noticing when you say right, you know you're right. I notice that. Let's talk about noticing for a minute. One of the take-home messages I would like people out there to get notice stuff with your kid note help them see what you notice walk down the street and say whoa look at that 
Look at that fire hydrant. Noticing is attention. Noticing is caring. Look what I'm caring about. Check this out. That joy, that enthusiasm with the world that we've created opens you up to a kind of adventure of life that makes the whole ups and downs of having two kids <laughs> much more fun, less stressful. So sounds like self-awareness is pretty big in your book. I start every... <laughs> I start every, um, every... Metaphorically and literally. Yeah, so it's, it's true. I think you got it. You are getting what I'm saying because I start every new meeting with a new parent who's really worried about their kid, you know, school's complaining or their home is a wreck or whatever, that the, opera, the sort of overriding goal is self-awareness for ourselves and for our kids. So two things you mentioned, one to stay on autism. We, we talked about before we started is that like the downloading of data and you talked about IBM versus Mac. Mac. Just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. For a so what I was, you know, when the your IBM um, computer crashed before we started this talk, I said, "Ah, it's autistic," and you laughed. I said, "No, I mean it." So you know, what I love—it's not a pitch for you know one computer over another, but the model of IBM computers are a little more fragile, in the sense that their RAM needs to be matched to what you're doing, their random access memory, because it can't handle too many windows opening. It gets shaky. And that's a really good model, in my mind, for explaining to parents what's happening to their kid with autism. If you open too many windows, right, depending on what degree and who mm -hmm. they are, if you, they crash, they freeze. They go into beyond fight or flight. They go into freeze the ultimate shutdown, because they can't handle the information. Now, RAM is what the, the analog of that in organic beings like you and me is the hippocampus. The hippocampus in our, in our you know, limbic system is really a fascinating aspect of our nervous system because it's where we can bring in information and sort it out, thalamus, hypothalamus, um, but hippocampus especially, is taking in this information, kind of holding it all there and saying, all right, I can, you know, I can scramble the eggs without burning the toast. Mm -hmm. I'm keeping my eye on that while I'm doing this, right? And a lot of the research on multitasking, which is a big part of our world right now, is this idea, uh, a lot of the research is done with air traffic controllers, where, you know, they're, essentially there's no such thing as multitasking, they're just jumping from one thing to the next, the next, the next, the next, the next, the next, and they find that their their acuity, their attention, and the depth of their awareness go down the more things they jump between, and their stress goes up because you're sending a message to pay attention to 25 lions chasing you, not one. Right, so you go into this moment of eventually burning out. Right, so what I want to explain is that the, one of the goals in PTSD of any kind, 
Mukul autism, a PTSD form, is how to expand this organic structure, how to stimulate your RAM so you can hold more information without freaking out or crashing or freezing, right? And this can be done. And I've been doing it for many years. Now, there are some basics to how to stimulate this processing, right, to grow more RAM. One is, you already know some of these, because you write about them in Mind, Body, Green all the time. The ground floor of all this. The ground floor is five things. Eating, sleeping, moving, playing, breathing. And breathing, I would make in a subcategory of breathing, pooping. Hmm. Because both of them share one thing. Do you know what that is? Letting go. Hmm. The most important part of breathing is exhaling. The thing that makes you stupid or kills you is the buildup of carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide in your system, not the lack of oxygen. First, what hurts you and makes you acidotic is the CO2 building up. So just like it's important to have a bowel movement, it's important to breathe out. If let You have a three-year-old now, so I'm going to teach you a little emergency exercise for her. You ready? I'm ready for that. Okay. Make two <laughs> fists. Okay. Really tight. And you're telling her to do it. Make two fists. Breathe into your belly. Blow out hard and open your fists. More like you're blowing out a birthday cake. Okay. Ready? In. And blow it out. Right. So what you're doing is enacting with your body, synchronizing your body to your breath, the act of letting go. So we do that when she's having about a to try to do it when you see her going into it. There may be a point when she's already into it. There's nothing you can do. She's that's the little hourglass on your IBM computer going around. <laughs> you can't put any data into that. All you can do in that moment is another game I use when she, when a kid is going into that frustration shutdown, and she doesn't want to breathe. I mean, if you can get her early enough and she breathes, she'll release it. And then she can... So pre-tantrum, you see the tantrum's about to happen. This is where <laughs> the space between matters so that you're noticing when the overload is like the distant drum of it. There's yeah. some body language that's showing you, and I want to sensitize you to that. Not so you're walking around on eggshells, so that it's a mini opportunity to teach how to handle stress and how to release it and reboot ground and not crash what was your other uh, so the second pack? is yeah. tantrum pack is this if it's too late for that and she's no i don't want to breathe right <laughs> then she'll make a fist you know <laughs> so what you want to do is ask her i call this the game of three yeses but sometimes when you're in the heat of the moment particularly in a three-year-old or, or a 13 year old which are basically the same thing, <laughs> only more advanced vocabulary, is ask a question that you are guaranteed to get a yes from, from her. Now, this is really fascinating. The act of saying yes shifts your nervous system. Or C. Sure. C or yes. It's the sound requires a more complex movement of your mouth that requires you to engage the what's called in Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory 
which you should you should get him on here. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. The social engagement network. Yes engages it. No is like a shield, right? That's shutting it down. It's like a dog barking. No, I'm not dealing with you. No. So no is a, a defensive stance. And we want to transform the no. Most tantrums are a no. Sure. So we want to transform it into a yes. So the first step is to ask a question that you're guaranteed to say, or she's going to say yes to, because you'll downshift. She'll stand down a little bit. And, the, and it's not, do you want ice cream? So you can't say, do you want a treat later? No, because that's kind of, um, it, first of all, she'll say, no, you know, or it, it's trickery. So I want what's, the, be, what's the optimal here's question? Whatever she's saying no to, ask her if you're hearing it correctly. <laughs> you don't want to go to bed now. Is that right? Yes or no? Ah, uh, good one. And it creates connection. Yep. It immediately creates connection. Because what you're doing is saying, I'm hearing you. Yep. As opposed to, well, you have to which is just making her more pissed off, right? She's just going to get even more militant with you that you don't understand what I'm saying. So you want to... This works really great, by the way, with teenage Neanderthal brain. Right? <laughs> so in teenage Neanderthal brain, they feel like nobody understands them. And there's this momentary dysregulation in the brain where they, you know, their emotional centers can't sync with their logic centers, and they seem insane. Plus, we're waking them up too early. Most teenagers need to wake up about three hours later than they do, and they would be much better uh, equipped to deal with the stresses of middle school. How much sleep do they need? A hundred years ago, they got 12 hours sleep. Whoa. Teenagers. That was considered normal because it was before electricity. So what have we done? We've created an insane teenager because they want to stay up later, yeah, and, they're and then they have to get up for school. Right and their homework and all this sure. stuff. We've created that crazy teenager. That's not a physiologic thing. Anyway, so once you've asked the first yes, often that's enough for them to, if you get it right, I don't know your daughter, but if you get it right, they'll stand down just from that one. Because they'll throw a whole, yes, it's not fair. But they've said the word yes, and already they're connected to you. The second yes is dropping it down to the heart level. You're frustrated right now, aren't you? Yes or no? So Emotional it's, intelligence. It's training. making them feel heard, making them feel like they have a, a vote. What you're healing is the space between. Right. The third is body experience. Where do you feel frustrated in your body right now? Let's see if we can let it go. Because by the time she gets... You, the third yes, you know, is often you're grounding her in a moment of you're teaching her a coping skill to deal with you know with this endless coping challenges right one of the big words i use with kids is how to be a hero and i i kind of unpack it for them you know with them what what do you think a hero is and some of the boys will say the heroes the, you know who kills the bad guys they say no nah, that's not the hero fireman is a hero so what is a hero? What are the two qualities of every hero? And often they get stumped a little bit. They'll say saving the day or saving people. I said, all right, that's one. Then I'll say, who's a hero in your life? And often they'll pick a parent, and right. that makes them feel really good. And that's healing the space between. But 
I say, yeah, but there's something more that a hero does. And ultimately, I'm leading them to realize they will make they will face danger for another, mm-hmm. or they will feel uncomfortable for another, or they will sacrifice for another. But the real piece of it that I want them to take home is that being uncomfortable is not bad. A big pervasive problem in my practice is something I call discomfort intolerance. Zero tolerance for any level of being uncomfortable. Whether it's sad or mad or afraid or physical discomforts. And that's indulgence. You know, in the 11 things, I talk about the difference between indulgence and empowerment or encouragement. Encouragement means putting the courage in you. This is hero talk, right? The ability to be uncomfortable and get through it. Now, how do you do that? We all get uncomfortable. How do we cope? The secret goes back to our, the beginning of our conversation, which is this ability to visualize. If you close your eyes and you can see a tree or you could see your bedroom, you can hold more information in pictures in the right brain than you can in data entry, linear thinking, where things have to go a certain way. And if they don't, I can't handle it. Right. That becomes very rigid, fixed mind thinking, Carol Dweck's work on mindset. Right? Growth mind is activated when you can see the big picture. And helping you practice seeing big picture is becomes like the empowerment looks like this. Can you see past it to when you're not going to feel your tummy hurt? So one of the big things that plays into this big picture thinking, which is the last of the 11 things, right? I find it brings the most comfort to parents. Let's say, you know, the flu is going around. As it is. As it is. (laughs) And I've seen kids with the flu. And you come in and you're freaking out because your kid has the flu. And I say, well, hold on. I've seen what this does. Here's the course. First three days, he's going to have fever. He's going to get risk of dehydration. He's going to be miserable, crying, coughing, blah, blah, blah. Fourth day, he may, you know, fever may break, but he still feels like crap. Fifth day, he's looking a little better, but he's a little peaked. By the sixth day, he'll have diarrhea, and you know it's over. Now, just unpacking a lot, you know, the cycle, just laying it out for you, everybody relaxes. Hmm. Big picture thinking. That's the hero. The hero has the eyes on something on the other side of difficulty. So when I think of big picture, we're, we're my head, and if Colleen were with me, we're, we're our head went pretty quickly, is how do we get our three-year-old to see the big picture of a sibling? Yes, it's beautiful. It's actually a beautiful question. And it's, it's really, you know, every parent goes through this. I went through it. We all go through it. First piece of it, my wife, I remember talking to me about this when we had our second kid was, is my heart big enough to love this one as much as I love the first one? Mm -hmm. And I said, of course. And the first miracle 
of any mother or father is when your heart expands to take in that second one, right? That's like, to me, one of the great miracles I get to witness, when parents can expand their heart to actually take in another being that they love as much as the first one. Well, that's the goal for your oldest, is to be able to expand her heart. So the training is empathy training. And here's what empathy training goes like. First, remember empowerment, not indulging. Indulging means you're telling her what to do. Empowerment means she's telling you. It's coming from inside her, which means you're asking her questions so that she has some agency in this. And one of the, op I, I define empathy in very specific terms. It's not sympathy. It's not feeling sorry for people. I don't want her feeling sorry for her sister. I don't want her feeling sorry for herself. Empathy means you can use your imagination to imagine what another person needs. Very simple. That takes imagination, our greatest God-given gift is our imagination. Imagination means image, picturing, big picture, all related. It's what I'm trying. So empathy is this idea that we want to activate, and it would look like this. What do you think your sister needs right now? Right? Just saying that gives her some expertise right helps her feel like dad needs my help so you have to play a little dumb it, one of the indulgence things that i want to stop parents i want parents to stop doing is stop reading your children's minds people like you who have a big heart are very good at knowing what your kids need before they have to say it that crushes them. Be ignorant. In other words, say, hey, honey, I don't get it. You know, the baby seems unhappy. What do you think she needs? Don't be the know-it-all. Right. It's an equal playing field. Here's another thing that really bothers me these days. The word child needs to change its meaning. In, if you were living in my head, a child is the wisdom keeper. A child is the sage. As they get older, they lose that. And then you spend the rest of your life on spiritual journey trying to get it back. Don't downplay a child as knowing less than you. So I'm going to give you a real-world example. Which I love is, it. Which is a combination of a couple of things we touched on. One is the meltdown, and two is the sibling. So real-world example happens all the time in our household where... Ellie will go over and, you know, like like squash Grace's face or give her the claw or hit her. And so what, what how do you... Well, what do you... What, so in, so the, in it, the model we're it, using, it, it, so, it's a classic example. So let me play it with you <laughs> It first. is a classic example, classic. which happens across millions of households every millions day. Millions of households, <laughs> more than once a day. Now, there are a couple of pieces to this that I want to unpack. The first high level is don't be a policeman. You're not the UN peacekeepers. That doesn't work too well anyway. <laughs> and a lot of the research on sibling rivalry, by the way, 
has shown that when kids are allowed to work it out themselves, they're better at dealing with social interactions when they grow up. Sure. When you go in and save the day and say, don't you do that, I'm separating you two, you go to your room, all that, they never get to experiment with it. Because what is it that I want your oldest to realize in terms of self-awareness? That she can hurt somebody. I want her to realize it. I don't want you to tell her. I want her to realize the baby's crying. So the top level is stop going in and being the policeman. Let them battle it out because you're youngest. Well, she's seven months. She can't do anything. But. You believe it, she can. <laughs> but as she gets older, she will do it. Oh, don't worry. She will nudge her oldest. You know, you're, you know, and she's going to, right? So the idea is that set a stage that you trust your oldest. But actually act dumb when she goes over and she swats her, before you react, because we go into this power moment where we react, we're human, and we want to protect the vulnerable. So we want to, what did you do, and all that stuff. It creates a kind of a shift of attention to her, where being bad is a way of getting attention mm -hmm. away from the baby. We don't want to play that out. That backfires very rapidly. So we want to put all our attention and all our love on the hurt one in the group without any blame, any shame, any pointing fingers, any what did she do to you stuff. We want to just shed attention on the baby. The best way to do it is to, you know, take the baby out of the room and say, oh, are you okay loud enough that, yeah. that we can hear it, right? And so, you know, oh, I think you're okay, but no shaming. Because the impulse is coming from a place, well, let's talk about what is... Can I use your daughter? Sure. Ellie, do it. What is, what is the impulse? What's the need that she has that she's meeting through that behavior? So it's probably attention. Yeah. Maybe. It may be territorial. Probably that too. <laughs> it may be the need for contact, for connection. But the impulse is overridden. You know, it's like my dog, when I wrestle with my dog, sometimes she nips. She doesn't mean to hurt me, but she gets carried away, mm -hmm. you know, and she's three. So it's natural for the energy to spiral, and she's not being mean or evil or you're not raising a psychopath. It's just impulse. But we want to always ground it in empathy, which is what the need. What do you think she needs? And you can even ask her, what is it that you're needing right now? You can even do the three yeses game with Ellie in the heat of the moment once you're sure that the baby's okay. You shed the, so it looks like this. Swat, you go over, you take the baby, you pick her up, oh, are you okay? Clint Eastwood cool. <laughs> no reaction, what did you, none of that. Really cool, you're just there to ensure safety. That sends a message that you can control your reactions. You're a role model in the great experiment that Ellie is doing in the house. She's a scientist. She's testing limits, testing boundaries, testing rules. That's a brilliant scientific exploration. How, every time I do this, does Daddy do that? 
So don't, you're not a big fan of the timeout. You're not a big fan of... Timeout is like jail. (laughs) And nobody comes out of jail rehabilitated and spiritually aware, (laughs) unless you're a very unique being, right? So we want cool out. You know, we want to teach, you know, go to the yoga studio and, you know, go to the corner over there. Take a deep breath. Well, no, give a breath. Don't take a breath. Taking a breath is stressing yourself out give the breath yep. give a birthday breath or I call them to kids I call them power breaths give a power breath right um, recognizing the difficulty of having to manage a new common space shared space that's evolving in your apartment in your home there's an evolving common space right and so she's bumping into this little being who is starting to be a real person. And so we give give attention, care, and then you can say to her, when she sees you caring for that and not giving her any attention, then once it's all settled down, you can turn to her and say, were you needing attention? Or, you know, you can walk it down saying, you didn't like when she touched your toy is that right yes or no (laughs) the act of saying yes downshifts her you're teaching her empathy and you walk that yes down to the ground floor of what she needs connecting her feelings of frustration to her needs the other thing to think about is that this is an embodied experience don't ever forget that what she's experiencing you know behavior is the tip of the iceberg of emotions And emotions are driven by needs. And that's a kind of compassion for her. So, in a sense, you know, we're all, look, having having kids is is challenging in 2020. And... For sure. Okay, you know, three and seven months, you know, we're dealing with it not so bad. And as Colleen says, you know, if we're struggling now... (laughs) My nightmare, I am, Colleen will say, I am dreading having two girls in middle school in this day and age. Being, look, being being a girl is tough, being a girl in middle school in this day and age with all this. So is that a valid uh, concern? Well, (laughs) you know, again, I told you at the beginning of this, it's all about empowering parents. And... I don't want you going into it thinking this is a nightmare you're heading into. Um, so the empowerment is, first of all, your your investment in that not being, sort of like putting money in the bank so that you can navigate 13 more gracefully, is going through this now. That is your savings account. What you do now plays out then. Puts more pressure on us now. No, well, no. You you have more opportunities to get it wrong and then try a different way. So think of it in a more compassionate way that you don't have to get it right the first time. Right? There is wiggle room here. Sure. But one of the higher high ideals of parenting that gives comfort to children is consistency. Children are tracking your every move. 
they're like experts, the Jasonologists. <laughs> She's, you know, Ellie is taking notes on, Daddy did this this time, Daddy did it this way, this time. He reacted time. this way and that way. That drives yeah. them nuts when right. it's inconsistent. When it's consistent and grounded, and when you're stressed and you can talk about your stress and how you deal with it, you're sending a message that you're saying yes to stress. I can handle this. Hmm. I, this is what I do. Everybody gets stressed. You're not bad. Sad is not bad. It, right? And so think of it as a, a training ground. Now, I will tell you <laughs> in laying out, you know, what I, I can't help it. After 35 years of pediatrics, I can't help but think ahead of how, you know, next year for you guys, this is like triple A league. <laughs> Four and two. Or, you know, four and one and eight and change, right? That's now you're heading into the major leagues. Four is a pinnacle of time because it's all about learning to play by the rules. <laughs> very frustrating for little kids who are free spirits to then suddenly start having to play by this hidden agenda of rules, the do's and don'ts of how we live, coexist in a society. That prepares them for school and, you know, so that's a big moment. Well, also too, you talk about four and I think of kids, so Ellie's in a preschool and I don't know if my observation, my, my thoughts, my opinion, I don't know if they're valid, but I get the sense that kids are starting a little too early and are just overscheduled. Is that, yeah. is that a it's real really a thing? Good, good topic. Um, I believe that we've created a hyper-scheduled experience for children because we ourselves have moved into a digitalization of the space between, that we can't handle it, so we fill it with stuff. Instead of just going for a walk or just downtime, we ourselves are raising kids as if it's the internet <laughs> and we're bouncing from one page to the next right everything's starting to look like the internet and that's not, we're losing the space between so what's the space between when a kid i see kids all the time particularly in my new york city practice that are crazy overscheduled. i mean every single day they have an activity and some of them because they're different types of kids need some downtime to sit in their room and play with their Legos and not do anything. And I think the particularly millennial parents are driven by this kind of world, this computerized world of constant activity, Mm -hmm. no downtime. So what role should nature play? All right, so this is great. In the schedule, if you will. No, no, it's beautiful. (laughs) So one of my simple take-homes that I boil things down after we've unpacked screen time and overscheduling and empathy training and all these things that we're talking about is here's a rule, right? Here's a, a family rule for everyone in the family. I call it the one-to-one rule. For every minute on a screen, you have to have a minute of nature. And you can't bank it for the weekend. <laughs> you can't bank it for the weekend and go to the park. So this self-limits the screen time i like that it's a very simple rule right it it controls so in the winter months when you're not going to send your kid to the park at you know seven o'clock at night 
because it's dark and cold, you've now, you know, you have no more screen time. Now we have to play. We're going on an adventure in the apartment, and we're gonna. I'm gonna take some toys and I'm gonna hide them around the apartment. We're gonna get down on the floor together, and we're gonna go on a little adventure because I used up all my screen time too. And so nature is defined as analog. Right. Nature is not just trees. It's anything that isn't wired. <laughs> yep, that's fair. So, I, again, I know it's hard to, to generalize and simplify, but if you had to put together a, a roadmap, if you will, mm. and if you, you, you put ages in buckets or whether, you know, two to four or four yeah. to six or go year by year from, call it birth to... Well, to, to, to 15, I, where I'm going is almost like your version of like what to expect when you're expecting yeah. like the things you should focus on. This is what I'm writing my next uh, book about. Perfect. We're selling the book right here on the podcast, guys. <laughs> Literary agents, you got to right. get this guy. He's Seasons the best. Seasons of childhood. So, so like what should we focus on wherever you want to start as parents? If you so to like year by year. Right. Or, it's not. So year by year is already digitalized. We've already digitalized it when we say year by year. Oh, you're five, you should be doing this. We've screwed the whole thing up. So if I were to do that in my garden, all the plants are supposed to have flowers at the same day. That's insanity, right? And so different plants have different blooming times, different requirements of water and ground, you know, and sunlight and different sprouting seasons, right? All of this becomes rich material to unpack with two kids that you have now. So the what to expect is a beautiful thing. I love it and it's what I live. But the cycle of these spirals, it's not a straight line and then you're dead or a straight line and then you're done, right? I've done my job. She's five, right? It's not a race. Child development is not a race. It's a journey. It's a story that's being told. It has ins and outs and plots. It's more like, you know, this very interesting and elaborate side um, stories as you're growing this child and ripening this child, right? And so, you know, for me, the first four months are called, or three months are called the fourth trimester. First stage. You and carp. Yeah. Buddhahood, right? <laughs> yep. This is a Buddha. Right? This is someone who is like a blob. There is no other. There's no agency. They're just like looking at the world. I mean, that's a time for you to meditate on what it's like to be a Buddha. Then you enter a stage of agency where a child starts moving. It's physical body intelligence. Rolling, sitting, crawling, standing, cruising, danger, separation anxiety, stranger anxiety. This is all up to about 18 months to two. Then we have an emotional charge because we start pinning reality down with words. It's a loss of Buddhahood, temporarily. It's still in there, but it goes into hiding because now we think this is the same as the word cup. Hmm. No, it's not. If I break this, is it still a cup? Right. And, you know, so we start like getting ourselves rigid with language development. So the terrible twos are all about language. And that's why a kid has discovered the greatest power of no. 
And it's an empowerment. It's willing. It's a willfulness that is beautiful. It's strong. T. Barry Brazelton always praised everybody when their kid was having tantrums because they said, you've got a very strong-willed kid. Great. We need them in the world to deal with all the crap we've created for this society. You know, we've created a very unnatural world for our children to grow up into. Some of the supplements you're now creating are for, and some that I'm involved in creating, are actually for supporting and optimizing a 21st century child, 21st century adult, because we're contending with things that humans never had to deal with before. On every different level of our being, spiritually, emotionally, cognitively, physically, immunologically, right? There's so many artificial things that the human hasn't evolved to deal with it. So we're trying to counterbalance that with some of the supplements we promote in functional medicine and things like that, Chinese medicine, to adapt more optimally to the world that isn't going away. Right? A lot of what we're talking about is how to counterbalance that in, in all these different forms, right? So the stage of language then evolves into the stage that Ellie is in now, say three-ish, three to four and a half, somewhere in that range, depending on who you are, temperament-wise. Some kids go through it shorter, some longer. That's important. Who you are matters in the equation. Not everybody goes through it by date. There's not an expiration date on these things that you can check. Different temperaments, different ways. So this is the period of learning empathy, storytelling, empathy, sharing. That's what she's in, and she's grappling with it, fighting it a little bit, learning how to play the game of sharing, ring around the rosy, right? Telling a story. Going from language labeling in the twos to telling a story, our greatest gift right? That prepares you for the furious fours or fives, depending. And that's the power of why, to understand causal relationships. And, you know, it unpacks in this way of understanding that everything has an agenda hidden behind it, which makes us a little paranoid that why is this here? You know, why am I here? Becomes more existential. And that prepares you for seven. And that's a deep period of reliving birth. So if you've had a traumatic birth, six or seven may bring that stuff up again, and you have a chance to clear it. And then you start all over, only it's on another level of the game. So the way I'm defining it in the book I'm writing about it is a spiral. So you keep coming around to revisit issues. You know, so Ellie will deal with sharing that she's dealing with now at three, seven years from now. <laughs> but it'll be on another level of the game that intuitively both of you are thinking about ahead of time. So what you do now helps give her tools so she can cope with it when the girls don't want to talk to her at the lunch table, you know, when she's, what, 10 years old or 11 years old. Meanwhile, hormonally, she's starting to get the drum roll of estrogen at 11. All of these physical being experiences you get to explore now because you're going to talk about it again. And then it spirals out into adulthood and keeps spiraling out. 42 is, is 7, is birth. 
And this is what I'm playing with. So it's this upward it, spiral. And you're going upwards, you're still coming. It's not only upward, but outward. Sure. And that's self-awareness. So Big s- picture. Something you, you touched on earlier, I, w- I want to unpack when we were talking about autism. You also mentioned allergies. Mm. Yeah, What's allergies, going on there? So, yeah, and that <laughs> is definitely skyrocketing. Yeah. So what is an allergy? You know, an allergy is basically your system is saying... I can't handle this. This isn't safe for me. Right? It's a kind of immune paranoia. It's an overreaction. I mean, it's just a peanut, dude. <laughs> but it's like the end of the world. Sure. I'm going to die. Kill you, yeah. So we're understanding that when our microbiome isn't healthy and our stress, we don't know how to handle stress and the space between is unhealthy. Of course you're going to start putting up barriers. Your, your defense systems are going to feel threatened. On a cellular level, you're going to feel threatened. Just being born by C-section is setting a stage that you can't even come out the right way. Right Now, I recognize there are plenty of times where C-sections save lives. Sure. But the C-section rate is way... I've watched it go up, you know, since I finished my training because of time. It's all about time. I can't tell you, and, and, you know, I don't want to take a risk on this kid. You know, let's just get the baby out, right? We tried Pitocin, right? So all of these things that we're doing that are unnatural because we don't have the patience to deal with the space between, the transition space, when we hurry stuff up, when we use convenience to make our decisions on anything, on any level, set the stage for a hyperimmune reactivity, a hyper-emotional uh, reactivity. You know, I would say anxiety and allergies are linked. I see it all the time, all the time. It's one of the most common patterns, and you've got to deal with both of them to downregulate the system. Have you seen allergies reversed? Absolutely, all the time. Through, through all the dealing time. with anxiety? All the time. Wow. All the time. Here's a good example. Eczema, there's a subgroup of kids I see. This is fascinating. I never read it in books, but I've seen it in my practice. Kids who are delayed in language and have eczema, their eczema goes away when they develop effective language. Because language is a way of meeting that space between, healing that space between, connecting with someone, without building up frustration inside you, you know, when you can't get the words out. So think of it as metabolic heat Hmm. that needs to be vented one way or another. What's the biggest medical um, disorder in America? Constipation. IBS, yeah. No, not IBS. Just constipation. Is more products are sold for constipation than anything else sure. on, on, in New York, in in the United States, right? We're uh, we're holding on to too much stuff, so it's going to come out. You know, we're re- reabsorbing toxins and stuff like that. So, with the skyrocketing numbers on allergies, it sounds like you're 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 optimistic there. Oh yeah. What about? I'm optimistic because of people like you. Well. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious because you're spreading the word that there is a link between mind, 
body, and green. And that link deeply matters for me. When I left my peds practice, because it had become this factory, and I didn't want to do that anymore. I, want, I like spending time with parents doing consultations. I like difficult cases where nobody knows what to do. And that's what I do now, right? Or, or just what we're doing right now, talking talk and empowering. Talk to normal people. Talk to, to normal people optimize. where there's nothing wrong, but we want to optimize. I want the space to do that. One of the reasons when I wrote this piece in one night, The 11 Things, you were the perfect people to put it out there because you get this connection between mind, body, and green. Green meaning the space between. We could say mind, body, space between. <laughs> too, long, too long, too long, <laughs> too long. The point is, yes, I'm optimistic because more and more people are becoming aware that the medical system is designed to put out fires. Here's your steroids, shut up. Here's, you know, and that's it. As opposed to this, I love millennials because they're becoming really savvy that there are other ways beyond the medical system, which is beautiful at what it does in emergencies. But in, you know, chronic problems or recurrent problems are not emergencies or emotional problems or developmental challenges. Those aren't emergencies. So we're using the wrong tool for the problem. It's like taking a hammer when you need a screwdriver. Do you share that same optimism when it comes to autism? Definitely. I've seen so many kids outgrow their autism. Wow. Yeah. ADD, same thing. ADD is the ultimate mission in my life, which is self-awareness and empathy. In some ways, empathy cures ADD. If you care about the teacher, what she's talking about, caring, you're going to pay attention to her. Which is why the roots of what you're doing with Ellie right now are like preventing ADD down the road because you're working on empathy. So any closing thoughts for a, a, a conscious parent out there who's, again, hard to generalize, but just looking to, to do a better job, whether it's with their newborn or toddler or, yeah. or teen. You know, just, think, there are two pieces to it. It's great. And, you know, I, I love your questions because they're coming from the heart, you know, and they're, they're, they're great. The first is trust your intuition. When you can clear all the fear that the internet has given you, <laughs> get rid of all that and ground yourself. This is a spiritual experience raising a child. Your teacher is your child. The buttons they push are your spiritual buttons, and you can work those buttons. There, you bow to them and say, thank you. I, I realize i got to work on grounding myself. Okay? Got to work on patience. Today. Yeah, yeah. So patience is my, this is patience, patience Tuesday, right? But... More to the point, don't be so quick to fix everything. Growing a child is not an emergency, <laughs> right? And so this, you're in it for the long run, right? And so fixing implies there's something wrong. And that plays out in all kinds of terrible ways down the line. When we work as a team, when you and Ellie work to solve a problem together with the dignity that she's just as intelligent as you, and it's not putting out the fire. Everybody can get some breathing room in the space between, you know? And so I think good-natured conscious parents want to fix everything, and it puts so much pressure on the relationship. 
that you got to get it right. I got my kids shouldn't be fighting. I'm, you know, I'm Jason. I, you know, I, I run a, a consciousness center. Why are my kids fighting? I must be doing something wrong. That self-judging is is missing the journey. Gather the team together, work it out. You don't have to fix it. It's not broken. It's a process. Mm. It's a journey. It's not something wrong. That's really important because this word plays out in so many negative ways in our society of self-loathing or blame, shame, that I want to, you know, empowerment is the exact opposite of that. Dr. Stephen Cowan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.